Have you ever heard this passage before? It's from 1 Corinthians, towards the very, very end of the book. It says this, Be on your guard. All right, pretty simple. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous, be strong. And then verse 14, do everything in love. Now, Paul, he's, he's ending his book um, as he's writing to the Corinthians, and he's trying to teach them something very important. You know, love is the most important thing. He says that many times in that book. And we know from, from John that that God is love. So do everything in love really means do everything in God. This is, this is a pretty big deal. Well, that command, do everything in love, I don't know about you, but sometimes that seems a little tough. A few years back, I was leading a youth event here at the church, and uh, if you've ever spent time with teenagers, you know exactly what this is going to be like. But uh, anyway, we had about 20 youth here, and we had upstairs and downstairs. We had lots of games that were happening. We had big events, you know, we had movies for way late in the night or very early in the morning, whichever way you want to look at it. We had snacks and, and all this stuff ready to go, but the one stipulation of this event was that they had to bring their own snacks, um, because with that many teens, I wasn't exactly sure you know, who would, could have what and, and what they wanted and all that stuff, so I just had them bring their own snacks. Now, I knew for a fact that th- some people were going to forget to do this, you know, and sure enough, we got to that portion of the evening, and there was this one kid sitting off to the side acting real mature, um, and he was just kind of moping. And everybody else was enjoying their snacks. And I don't, the weirdest thing happens. They come, they have these like king cans of, of energy drinks and stuff like that. And they'll pound back like six of those and think that it's okay. And, you know, they're literally vibrating across chairs and stuff like that. Anyway, this kid was sitting here moping because he didn't have the ability to vibrate across the, the chairs like everybody else did. And he was very, very upset. And so I, I walked over and sat down with him and we started talking, you know, just to see where he was at and what was going on. And Sure enough, he was really upset that he didn't have what everybody else had there. And so I said, well, just hang on one second. I went over to my office and I scooped up a bunch of stuff. You see, I had bought a whole bunch of supplies beforehand. I knew some kids were going to forget. And I bought really good stuff too, you know, the, the brand name things, none of that Walmart brand business. No, no, these were, you know, Cokes and Pepsis and things, real things. And so I scooped up a whole bunch of stuff. You know, my arms were just loaded, way more than any of the other kids brought for themselves. And I walked over to this kid. And I'm like, look what I have for you. And I just kind of set it down into his lap, more like dumped it into his lap. And he, he like, it all fell, and, and he was looking, and he was looking up at me and looking down at this, and then he, he got this look in his eye, you know, and, and he started looking up at me, and our gaze met, and I was sure I, I was about to enjoy the next moment, and he said, this is it? <laughs> he said, this sucks. <laughs> and then he gra- gathered it all up and took it with him and stormed off, <laughs> upset that he was given free snacks that he never had before. In that moment, I learned a principle And it's a universal truth that we all know very well. And you need to understand this principle if you want to understand what the Bible is about. The principle is this. People are hard to love. That's true, isn't it? You know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, think of it, meddling family members or or that frenemy that you have. It's kind of a friend, but more like an enemy. Uh, what What about people that are in traffic, right? Anybody in traffic at any time. Activists. All of them, whatever they're activating for. Um, Politicians are kind of hard to love. You know know what I'm talking about. Everywhere you go, you're always surrounded by people, and it's always the people that drive you nuts. Even though every one of you would say, guess what, I'm a people person. You don't really know what to do with people when they come to you because people are terrible. They really are, and they're so hard to love. 
This is a universal truth. And so Paul tells us, okay, do everything in love, but if people are hard to love, how exactly is this supposed to work out? Well, the disciples had the same question to Jesus when he was still on the earth. And he was trying to teach them about love. He was trying to teach them about everything he was about, trying to teach them to carry on after he leaves this world. And so he gathers them together during the Last Supper, and he's talking to them. And he he wants to fill them with with hope and understanding and knowledge of what is going to come and what's about to happen. And so this is in John chapter 16. He says this, I tell you the truth. And I love that statement because you can know, you can just take that to the bank, right? Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's good to go. It is for your own good that I am going away. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had Jesus like physically present with me right here, right now, it would be tough to let him go, especially if you spent some time with him. Because just the way he was interacting with people, people loved being around him, people loved seeing him, they loved hearing his teaching and all that stuff. I bet you it was pretty hard for them to let him go. And he's saying, no, no, it's for your own good that I'm going to go. Because unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him, the counselor, to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin... Because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned, he says. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and will make it known to you. Jesus promises them the Spirit, and this is a big deal. And what's beautiful to me about this passage is the Spirit is not only a person, but He's also the tool by which Jesus is going to make Himself known to other people. Remember, Jesus is going away. He will not be physically present anymore. And He's going to draw people to Himself somehow. He says He's going to do this by revealing to them the magnitude of their sin. Just how how troublesome and how bothersome and how wholly messed up we are inside. He will convict them of that. And make them realize, oh my goodness, I really do need this Jesus person. And he says, I will do that because they don't even believe in me. Which I find remarkable. And we don't have time to jump into that this morning. But I wish we did. He says he will draw people to himself through righteousness. Jesus isn't going to be physically present. And remember, the thing that drew people to Jesus was how outrageously he lived. You know, he, he looked at the Jewish society and he looked at the rules of the religion and he saw it completely upside down from the way everybody else did. And he taught them things that they never understood before. He revealed God in ways that they had never considered before. And then he did all that outrageous stuff. Like he actually loved people and he loved being around people and he drew people to himself. He cared for people. He forgave people. He did all this outrageous acts of righteousness right in front of everybody. And he said, I am going to make you righteous. I am going to give that to you through the Spirit, and so people will see me through what you're doing, and they will be drawn to you through righteousness, even though I won't be present. Then he says he's going to draw people to himself through judgment. 
And that's important that we remember that. See, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We live in this really strange time where judgment is a dirty word. You know, everybody's feelings are the most important thing. And if you dare to judge somebody else, you have committed the worst crime that you can commit. And then you can make fun of those people and you can, you can judge them all you like, but you're not allowed to judge anybody else, just those people who are judgmental. It's very confusing. And we live in this, this strange time that wants to get away from the word judgment as much as we can, and yet he says, I will draw people to me through judgment. And I think what's going on here is he says, look, Satan is condemned. He's done. The game is over for him. We know exactly what's going to happen to him. His fate has been sealed. God has guaranteed it. And so anybody who stands with him is basically getting on a sinking ship. He says the Spirit will draw people away from that sinking ship and stand them over here on the side that is innocent. And when you are judged, you will be pronounced innocent because you stand with Christ. Christ has made you new on the inside. He has forgiven your sin. He's taken it all away. And so you will stand judged, pure and innocent, and my child. And that's how God is going to draw people to Him through judgment. And it's in this work... Of, of, of all that stuff. That's what the Spirit is going to do, Jesus says. This is what the Spirit is meant for. This is why I'm sending the Spirit to you. So all of this stuff can happen. And then he promises them that they're going to go on and do bigger and greater things than he ever did because the Spirit's going to be at work within them. And he will make us like his truth. He will make us more like Christ by sending the Spirit to be around us. Then a bunch more things happen. After the Last Supper, of course, we know that Jesus is, is crucified and he resurrects once more. He shows himself to lots of people and he has a bunch of conversations with the disciples and gets them ready for him to leave. And then he, he goes up and he ascends into heaven, which I really wish I could have been there to see because I have no idea what that looked like. You know, if you look that up on Google, it's all these images of kind of Jesus looking a little gassy, kind of floating. And I don't think that was it at all. I, I like to imagine fireballs and... Anyway, anyway, he goes up into heaven and the disciples are left there to their own devices. They're finally alone. And so the first thing they do is they say, hey, you know what? Judas is dead. Maybe we should replace him. So they kind of talk amongst themselves and elect somebody to fill that space. And then they are sitting there doing exactly what Jesus asked them to do, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come so that they can go out and do what he asked beyond that. And so there they are in a room. It doesn't tell us where exactly this room is, but I like to imagine it. They're sitting there in this room, and, and it's about 8.30 in the morning. They've had their breakfast. Everything has been cleaned up, and they're discussing the business of the day. They're wanting to reconnect with some of the disciples that are on the far side of Jerusalem. They're, they're talking about their supply inventory and, and what they need to go and get. And, and, you know, just regular old business stuff that needs to happen whenever groups of people are together. And there they are doing all this discussion, and all of a sudden the window flaps that are closed start battering against each other, making that noise. And the wind seems to be kicking up an awful lot. But the sound of the wind, that's what's really strange. It, it sounds so much harsher than what they can see. And it seems like the wall is starting to vibrate. And so Andrew, he gets up and he walks over and he's trying to, to tighten those, those blinds together, those shades together so that the wind won't burst through. And all of the sudden, the, the blinds break right open and it knocks Andrew down to the ground. And what pours through the window is this swirling mass that looks like fire, but not like fire. 
It has light in it and has colors in it and it's moving around and nobody knows what's to do, what to do with it. They stop everything that they're doing and looking up terrified at this thing that settles into the center of the room just floating there. It sounds like rushing water through a very narrow cavern. It, it, it looks like fire. You can hear voices but not voices. You, it sounds like shattering glass but not really like that. And there it is in the center and all of a sudden it splits up and hits all 12 of them at once. And then nothing. They're just staring at each other. And all of a sudden, all of them know exactly what they're supposed to do. And they get up and they leave that room and they go down into the courtyard out in front of the house where there's lots of people milling around. Jerusalem is a busy place. It is the center of Jewish livelihood. And there are lots of visitors from all over the Roman Empire, all these Jews going to the temple, trying to do their their yearly pilgrimage or whatever it is they're there for all milling about in a courtyard. And when the disciples get down there, they start spreading out into that crowd. And when they see the person that they're supposed to talk to, they know, I'm supposed to go talk to that guy. And so all of a sudden, all 12 of them are moving around this crowd, finding people, and they start talking to them. But the weird thing is, they don't start talking to them in in Hebrew or Aramaic, common languages that all these Jews would have spoken. They start speaking them in, in their home languages, where they're from. If you're from Persia, they start speaking to them in a, in a Persian dialect. If you're from Egypt, there was Egyptian dialects. There was, there was, there's dialects from Rome and from Asia, all over the place. And all of a sudden, the disciples were speaking to these people in those languages. And I bet you they were as shocked as the people that were sitting there listening to them. Because remember, these guys were ordinary people. They were fishermen And tax collectors, they weren't highly educated. They wouldn't have traveled to those regions and learned those languages. And the people that were listening to this were shocked that they could hear it in their own language. And the message that was being preached was that the kingdom of God is here. Now, while all of this is going on, there's a couple of guys sitting over in the corner. They see what's happening here, and they're not hearing their language at all, and they just start laughing and talking and pointing, and and all of a sudden, one guy just bursts out into laughter. He's like, look, those guys are drunk, and then they just all just crack up. And Peter's over talking to some Persian guy, and he hears this, and he looks over, and he stops everything. He puts his hands up, and he shouts out in a loud voice, once again in Hebrew or Aramaic, that everybody could understand. He says, men of Israel... These people aren't drunk. It's only 9 a.m. And at that, all the crowd starts laughing. And then he proceeds to explain what's going on. He said, this was promised to you in prophecy in the book of Joel. And he says, and Jesus Christ had come to us and he was accredited to us by miracles. He says, Jesus really was from God and you know this because he did amazing things that only God could do. And then he goes on to say, see, this is something amazing that only God could do as well. And he gets down to the very end of his message and he preaches something fairly simple. He says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of what? The Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's a pretty simple message. Sometimes simple messages don't really land. Do you know what happens? Not bad. 3,000 people came to know Jesus that day. 
Can you imagine the logistical problem of 3,000 people coming to Jesus? I mean, sometimes preachers stand in the front and they're like, if you, if you love the Lord and you, you want to dedicate your life to him, come forward now. And if, he, if Peter did that, 3,000 people, like this mad rush, he's like slammed up against the wall as people are like, please, please, you know. And they go off and baptize 3,000 people. All they had close by was the River of Jordan, which is not a big river. It's more like a creek in places and it's muddy and dirty. And so, like, we've got this beautiful baptistry over here, and later on there is going to be a baptism, by the way, in case you didn't put that together. And, you know, people come in and out, and it looks, they look clean and all that stuff. If you're being baptized in the Jordan River, you're going to be, like, rolling around in the mud and stuff like that. People are splashing water on top of you just to make sure you get all the way under. And they'll come up, and they'll be muddy and gross, but like a new creation. It's, it's a completely different visual. 3,000 people came to Christ that day. 3,000 people accepted the gift of forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what do you do with 3,000 people? And I guarantee you, in this group of 3,000 people, there was an ungrateful kid, just like the one that I met a few years back. I bet you anything that there was bossy people in that group. There were annoying people in that group. There were ugly people in that group. There were overly friendly people in that group. There are all the people that annoy us to death, that make it so hard to love other people. They existed in that group because it was a group of people. People who had emotional baggage. People who were coming to it because they didn't know what else to do. And all of these people came to it not fully knowing what was going to happen, but knowing that they had a promise of something amazing because they had just seen something amazing. And so this group of people are together, and this is what the apostles did with them. This is the most famous passage about church in the entire Bible. Take a look at this. Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any need arose. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Pretty impressive things were happening there. Pretty amazing things were going on. It's pretty easy to take a look at that passage and to go, wow, I really wish our church was more like that. It really is easy to do. You, you, you might look at it and say, wow, all we need to do really is just, just pray more and read our Bibles more and we'll have that kind of church. Or maybe it's, no, you know what all we really need to do is start selling our stuff and, and giving it to each other and then we'll have that kind of church as well. And these aren't bad thoughts, but here's the thing. The people there didn't have that kind of church because they read their Bibles, though reading their Bibles is very important. The people there didn't have that kind of church because they did a lot of prayer, though prayer is of the utmost importance. They didn't have that kind of church because they were selling all their belongings or because they were meeting in each other's homes or any of that stuff. The reason why they had that kind of church was because the people were fully 100% submitted to the authority of Christ through the power of the Spirit. 
They said, Jesus really is important enough to make my life about him. And then they let the Spirit work through them. And as the Spirit worked, they loved each other. They took care of each other. And the Spirit would move inside of people and say, you know what you really should do? You should sell your house so that that guy can eat tomorrow. And people did it. The Spirit would speak to them and say, you know what you really need to do? You need to go and talk to that guy right now. You need to go over and talk to that lady right now because they need what you have. They need to see what you've seen. And people just did it. And it says that the people were filled with awe. Now, if you have an NIV, a New International Version of the Bible, it does you a disservice with this verse because it tells you that the people were in awe because of the signs and wonders that the apostles were doing. And yes, people surely would be in awe if they were seeing miracles happen. I have no doubt of that. But in the other versions of the Bible, in the original Greek, it doesn't make that, that because of the signs and wonders. It says that the people were in awe because of the work of the Spirit. The people were in awe because they held things together in common. These weren't strangers from different corners of the empire any longer. This wasn't some hollow religion that they were used to that had a bunch of rules that made no difference in their daily lives. They were experiencing daily the power of the Spirit overtaking them and having them go out and do things together. And that filled them with awe. And that's the kind of church that they had. Paul tells us we're supposed to do everything in love. The only way to do everything in love is to allow the Spirit to work in your life. That means taking your hands off the wheel, not as you're driving out here today. That means saying, Spirit, I'm willing to do what you want me to do for your sake, for your kingdom, over mine. And you know, this can make a huge difference in the world. That's how Christianity spread. The people who were together, that initial group, they learned directly from the apostles how to allow the Spirit to work in them. And then they went home at some point. All the corners of the Roman Empire at some point heard the message of Christianity. Churches were planted that started with this ideal in mind. And so here we are at Halifax Christian Church. We have a mission. And if you've become a member of this church, you've accepted that mission. You've said, yes, I want to do that with my life. And our mission is what Jesus taught us. First of all, to love God. Love God with everything you've got. Learn more about Him. Be better at worship tomorrow than you are today. Be better at reading your Bible tomorrow than you are today. Be better at praying tomorrow than you are today. And do it by just doing it. That's what He says. That's what love God is all about. Be here in worship. Be here in study. Help yourself out that way. The second part is pretty simple. Love people. People are hard to love, and we know that. But the way that you love people is by submitting yourself to the Spirit and allowing Him to work within you. A few years back, before I moved to Halifax, I was living in Lethbridge, where my parents lived at the time. And uh, I was on my way out here to Halifax. I, so, you know, I didn't know anybody in that city that wasn't my home city or anything like that. Mom and Dad had moved there when I moved to college. And so I didn't know anybody there, and I was only going to be there for a few months. So, I, you know, I wasn't really eager to start building all kinds of relationships and stuff like that because I was just going to up and leave. But I was working at this Blockbuster. And for those of you who are young that doesn't know what a Blockbuster is, it's where you used to go to rent physical videos. We didn't have downloading technology then. So we actually had to go get them. Uh, I was working at this Blockbuster, and I was working with this guy whom 
he and I didn't see eye to eye is the polite way, the Christian way of saying it. Uh, most normal people would say that we hated each other. And that would be a light term. We couldn't stand each other. He hated everything that I stood for, and I hated everything that he stood for, to be quite frank about it. Uh, He didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in Christianity. He thought that all religions did far more harm than good, and he would go on and on and on about it. And he knew that he was pushing my buttons, and he could see me getting red as he violently attacked things I believed down to my core, and as he misrepresented them over and over and over again. And I'm sure I did the same thing to him, to be quite frank. And my, my manager at the time really thought it was funny to always put us together. And so I had months of spending shifts with this guy, eight-hour shifts in a lonely little blockbuster that didn't get visited much. And I hated it. And one day I was at home and I was praying. And I was saying, you know, God, I can't take this anymore. I can't take this guy. So here's what needs to happen. You need to change him. <laughs> I prayed, you, you, you got to change him because I hate him. So just make him better. And then, and then that'll work out. And after I prayed that, I, I kind of had this thought, like, wait a second, that didn't quite sound right. And I realized what I had said, and I thought about it. I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. And so I prayed again. I'm like, okay, God, you're not going to change him. You change me. How about that? Change my heart a little bit. And over the next few weeks, I kept praying that. I'm like, God, I, I hate this guy. Help me in some way to connect with him. Help me to see him the way you see him, maybe. I just, just change something in me so that I can stand to be in the same room as him. I wasn't even asking to love him. I just wanted to, to be able to get through my shift and be done. And eventually, a few weeks later, something changed. We were talking about cartoons, of all things, and all of a sudden we discovered that we loved all the same cartoons when we were kids. And all of a sudden, everything changed. We had an open communication. We were able to talk. Suddenly, somehow, we were friends in an instant over cartoons. And the weeks that followed, his attitude towards me changed and my attitude towards him changed. Now, I can't tell you that he just got down on his knees and started worshiping Jesus. You know, the clouds didn't part and a beam of light didn't hit him or anything like that. You know, he, he didn't ever become a Christian, but he stopped hating them. He stopped hating religion. He stopped hating the concept of God as he allowed me to talk a little bit about it. Now, we lost touch after I moved. I have no idea what happened to him. But I do know that if I hadn't prayed and asked the Spirit to change me on the inside, nothing would have happened there. And he would have continued to have a terrible idea of what the kingdom of God is all about. So today, I'm just going to ask you to do something simple. If you're a member of this church, you have a mission to accomplish, and that is to love people. That is the center. It's, it's kind of what holds the whole thing together. We're surrounded by people every day, and so what I'd like you to do is the next time that you're going to be in front of a group of people or a single person, you know, this means later on today when you're around anybody that you're around, ask the Lord something simple. Say, God, can you just help me to see them the way you see them? God, could you, could you just tell me what to do with this person right now? And it may be as something simple as, yeah, talk to him about cartoons. You know, God doesn't always ask us to pack up and move to Africa, okay? Just go and ask him what to do. And if you're not a Christian, if, you, if you're brand new to this whole thing and you're just trying to figure it out, there is a whopping promise sitting there for you. Your sins are forgiven. And when you accept that, 
when you accept Christ, you are going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because He's not going to leave you by yourself to do these things by yourself. He is going to empower you to do them with His own Spirit if you just let Him do it. 